What does maturity in Christ look like? For much of my upbringing, I was raised in a church that presented by many of its actions and attitudes that maturity as a Christian was proportionally related to Bible knowledge. Meaning, if you had a strong knowledge of the Bible, if you knew who Zephaniah was, or you could tell the difference between Judah and Israel, and you knew that Isaiah prophesied to the people of Judah during the 8th century BC when the Assyrians were conquering and destroying their enemies, or the names Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were names that you knew. If all of that was true, then you were considered a mature Christian. Of course, as time went by and I began to actually serve within the church and get to know more of the people that made up the church, I soon discovered that many times the people who knew where to turn when the pastor said, turn to Habakkuk or 1 Corinthians, they were oftentimes the same people who didn't really pray regularly, they couldn't share their faith, and they might in fact be guilty of being slightly unethical in their business dealings. In fact, I'll never forget the time that a person wanted to argue with me about the finer points of theology after a church service while he was standing hand in hand with the woman that he'd left his wife to be with. There was a disconnect. My favorite book of the Bible is the book of Philippians. I've read it dozens of times. I've taught through it probably a half dozen times. I've memorized large sections of it, not really intentionally, but because I've spent so much time studying it. I just know the book of Philippians pretty well. I have multiple favorite verses in every chapter of this short four-page letter. It is an encouraging book. Many people regard it as Paul's letter of joy. They speak about how Philippians was an encouraging correspondence from Pastor Paul to a church that he loved, and there really wasn't any major thing to correct at Philippi because they were a solid gathering of believers. That might be true. I don't really think that it is. I think that the Philippian Christians had their issues like every Christian. They were sinners, just like all Christians. They were in need of salvation and God's sanctifying power. They were not super saints. And when you really spend time reading and rereading the letter, it becomes clear that there were some issues that Paul was subtly addressing. There was, it seems to be, division among the Christians at Philippi, division that was probably connected to two individuals mentioned in the opening words of chapter four. And Paul is writing in a somewhat subtle manner, seeking to bring restoration and unity. Division is, as Paul would say, carnal. It is a sign of immaturity. And you can know a lot about the Bible and know a lot of what the Bible says. But if you also are conceited, self-important, or selfish, well, let's just say these things ought not be so. So Paul writes to his friends in Philippi and he says, I pray for you often, every time that I think about you, and I am confident that God is going to finish the work that he began in you, and I'm praying specifically that you may be able to discern what is good, and that you may be pure and blameless and 
bearing the fruits of righteousness. You see, it is good to know the Bible, but it is important to remember that the Word of God is to become a part of our lives. It needs to be digested and assimilated. It needs to become the ruling credo of our lives. It is like seed that should be planted in our hearts so that it can bring forth abundant fruit in its season. And when we allow it to rule in us, then we can fulfill Paul's exhortation when he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together in unity for the faith of the gospel. Something to think about. We'll see you next time. Thank you.